humans, friends, welcome, welcome back to Mind Medicine. I'm Tommy Moore, host of this podcast, and my job is to inspect and dissect some of the leading psychologists, psychiatrists, neuroscientists, neuropsychiatrists, and leaders in psychedelic-assisted therapies from all over the world to shine a light on breakthrough therapies for mental illness. Awareness, education, and better therapeutic solutions are urgently required if we are to have any chance of alleviating the suffering of individuals and the burden of mental health on society. Mind Medicine Australia is a registered charity committed to helping alleviate the suffering caused by mental illness within Australia through expanding the treatment options available to medical practitioners and their patients. Mind Medicine Australia is providing educational material and events, therapist training, ethical and legal guidelines, and is now developing an Asia-Pacific Centre for Emerging Mental Health Therapies, as well as supporting clinical research. At Mind Medicine Australia, we believe that everyone should have access to the safest and most effective care. We're a small organisation doing big things, and we need your support. Alright, let's do this. We're back. These weeks are flying by. I can't believe we're already up to episode 6. Hope you're enjoying the episode so far. If you are, please do leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Of course, this is a new podcast that covers incredibly important topics. So I do wish for this podcast to reach as many people as it can. We are a charity and we do need all the support that we can have. All right. Dr. Reed Robertson is a psychedelic psychiatrist and researcher who has led over 100 clinical trials in neuropsychiatry. He completed his undergraduate in neuroscience at Brigham Young University and went on to medical school at the University of Utah, where he earned both his medical degree and Master's of Business Administration. Of course, he didn't stop there. After residency training in psychiatry, Dr. Robertson completed fellowship training in neurodevelopmental genetics, followed by a postdoc in bioinformatics. As an early adopter and researcher of ketamine in psychiatry, Reed obtained his first grant to study ketamine in 2011. He also led the Utah site for the pivotal ketamine study for TRMDD by Janssen, leading up to the company's recent FDA approval of Spravato. To date, Reed has guided thousands of ketamine therapy journeys and hundreds of Spravato dosing sessions. He's also built a number of therapeutic-driven companies, including Tute Genomics, a venture-backed personalized medicine startup that was acquired in 2016, Cedar Psychiatry, which he co-founded and serves as a medical director of the Center for Change, a top eating disorder program. He's also a founding board member at the Utah-based nonprofit organization Psychedelic Institute. Reed is adjunct facility at the University of Utah, founder of the Polizzi Free Clinic, and provides medical support and psychedelic therapy at plant medicine retreats abroad. He's also the coordinating investigator of the MAPS MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study of eating disorders. Reed and I chat about the mental health crisis we are currently facing, some overlapping features and the role of genetics and epigenetics in mental health conditions, resetting, rebooting, and opening up new neural pathways through psychedelic therapies, the neuroscience of ketamine, pharmacogenetics, and much, much more. This man is incredible. I'll leave it at that, but sit back, 
grab a tea or coffee or go for a walk and enjoy the brilliance that is Dr. Reed Robertson. Reed, thanks so much for joining me. Hi there, how are you? I'm doing really well. It's nice and early here in Australia, 5am, and you're over in Utah. Wow. How's things over there? Uh, it's a beautiful day out here. It's not 5am, thankfully. <laughs> it's about 11am uh, over here. Yeah, wonderful. Now, you seem to be doing quite a few different things from psychedelic psychiatry to neuropsychiatry and a whole bunch of different research. How is it you describe what you do? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I'm a psychiatrist focused on the therapeutic use of psychedelic medicines and the therapy that goes along with it. So I guess from the beginning, I've dedicated my career to working with individuals suffering from mental health conditions, especially where traditional treatments have failed, studying new treatment modalities uh, and helping people access them in a safe and effective way. So we're in the midst of a huge mental health crisis and there seems to be limitations in the diagnosis of mental illness and it's often, I guess, based on symptomatology. And from my perspective, it also seems the medicalization of the experience of, say, depression or other mental health conditions reinforces a weak or suffering individual. What's your take on that? Well, it it is an interesting time right now, such a, a strange world we live in at the moment. And there, uh, I think we're all in a bit of a mental health crisis, aren't we? And, you know, I do like to take a, a bird's eye view back up and think about why do some conditions uh, seem to have over, overlapping features? Why do they respond to similar treatments? Uh, like, you know, psilocybin for depression or for end-of-life anxiety, for example. Um, and so I like to, well, there's a Carhart-Harris paper from a few years back on uh, a unified theory of, of mental illness. Uh, I think it was called the entropic brain. Uh, and I think about that a lot in day-to-day -day, uh, clinical work in that some uh, brains and sometimes in our life our brains are too locked, sometimes too loose, and there's balance to be found in the middle. Um, you know, on one end of the spectrum might be OCD, anxiety, other end, uh, you know, ad addictive patterns, uh, uh, nightmares, uh, binge eating episodes, depression where one can't get out of bed, and even on the far end, psychosis. And, and so I see you know, our role in therapy and in uh, psychiatry and in psychedelic medicine to try and restore that balance uh, along that continuum. In regards to that continuum, when we're talking about, I guess, the neuroscience of particular mental illnesses, I know it's sometimes it's difficult to just say, like, this is the part of the brain that causes depression and this is anxiety. But when there are a lot of similarities in terms of, like, rumination, there seems to be a lot of layover and similarities between a lot of mental illnesses. Now, a lot of people seem to believe it's kind of just poor luck that you don't have the right genetics for happiness, which can be incredibly impotent and can make people feel quite powerless. What role does genetics have in mental illness? Yeah, well, I remember back in medical school in a genetics course, 
learning about this uh, nature versus nurture debate, and I got really interested in genetics to the fact, to the point where I did a fellowship after my psychiatry training in genetics and, and spent a few years uh, working in academics on uh, gene-finding expeditions, trying to uh, discover the underlying causes of neuropsychiatric conditions, and um, I became convinced that it's not a nature versus nurture situation. It's a nature plus nurture. It's always uh, at least a little of both. And there's this saying that, you know, genetic predisposition, like our temperament, uh, you know, our genomes, for example, genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. And if you look at the heritability of, across mental health disorders, they're commonly somewhere in the range of, say, 40 percent uh, for depression, maybe PTSD being attributable to uh, genetics, up to more like 90% in autism spectrum disorders, and everything uh, falls somewhere in between. Um, from the best we can understand it through genetics, twin studies, population studies. When you say the lifestyle pulls the trigger, you're referring to the epigenome there, right? Yeah, yeah, and lifestyle is probably not the best term because we're all the sum total of both our genetics, this deck of cards that were dealt uh, at birth, but also every experience we've ever had, um, positive, negative, neutral, including in utero, and uh, with this idea that uh, is is well established now that neurons that fire together wire together, and, and we uh, lay down new pathways and connections based on uh, the path we're on in life, and and I think it's important to understand that um, for a number of reasons when going into a, a, a mental health uh, journey in terms of understanding and treating mental health conditions. Yeah, for sure. And I guess also a common belief in terms of brain plasticity, I guess in reference to neurons that fire together, wire together, how rigid are those neural pathways? How much leeway is there for change? Well, I think there is, uh, you know, immense possibility for change, almost, you know, infinite uh, capability for change. That's how, that's how it works. So the firing of, of neurons uh, leads to the strengthening of pathways and uh, kind of uncoupling of other pathways. And so I think it's, it would be more impossible to stay in a completely stagnant state than uh, it is to either uh, strengthen or, or uncouple pathways along the way. So I think that's uh, constantly happening in our day-to-day -day life, whether we're, you know, when we're driving a certain route home, it becomes habitual, or when we're learning the piano and these pathways, uh, you know, muscle memory and, and beyond gets laid down deep in our, in our nervous systems. When these neurons are solidified, it gives off the impression that we are stuck, I guess, in rumination from depression, anxiety, and various other mental disorders. It doesn't feel like there is much leeway. What kind of, I guess, maybe environmental pressures or other pressures can you do to actually, I guess, decouple certain pathways to make a new brain model? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it gets to the core of uh, what I'm focusing on in my research and clinical work. In certain in the conditions I work with, whether it's uh, you know severe, persistent treatment-resistant depression, for example, or long-standing trauma, or I work a lot with eating disorders as an example, and those those become deeply ingrained habits uh, where no one wakes up one day and chooses to have an eating disorder, for example, or if they say that, they're grossly misinformed. But uh, it's the result of these pathways that have developed, you know, subconsciously over time. And uh, the beauty of it is that, you know, so eating disorders are well-intended. The reason someone develops it and keeps it are very different. And so someone may consciously decide to uh, restrict what they eat or overexercise or you know, throw up after eating, for example. Uh, but then it takes a life of its own, becomes a, a, a perfect storm, so to speak, of biological, like genetic, environmental factors. Um, but I view it like physical therapy in the undoing of, of these pathways and replacing them with new ones. There are many paths up that mountain. You know, it could be a talk therapy, you know, with or without medication management. It could be like a you know, a mindfulness-based uh, intervention repeatedly over time. Another interesting one that I use in clinic for depression and OCD is TMS, transcranial mag magnetic stimulation, for example. But then psychedelics are more like this crash course in, in resetting, rebooting, or opening up a window of neuroplasticity to lay down new pathways. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about psychedelics in eating disorders i know you've done a lot of work with mdma in eating disorders but there's also ketamine in eating disorders could you possibly explain i guess what the difference between classical psychedelics like psilocybin and lsd and what the difference is between the non-classical psychedelics and like ketamine and mdma and what difference that has in terms of healing yeah, no, I would be happy to. It's a really fascinating topic. And, you know, the term psychedelic, of course, means to wander in the mind. And so I like that our definition in recent years is, has broadened somewhat uh, in most people to include say, ketamine and MDMA and not just the classic psychedelics that work largely on these uh, serotonin receptors like 5-HT2A, for example. Um, I think they they all have uh, a common feature of uh, getting oneself out of that stuck place uh, and um, seeing with a new perspective the forest from the trees, so to speak, and and opening up you know that window of neuroplasticity. That study is there. the The research is there for ketamine and psilocybin, for example, um, even though they work through different brain pathways. Um, we use them in similar ways paired with therapy in clinic. For sure. And in terms of the neuroscience of, of ketamine and MDMA, with classical psychedelics, it's quite clear that the default mode network is the one that's quietened down, which is, I guess, where the, the bulk of rumination takes place and referring to oneself and, and one's traits. What does ketamine, let's, let's start with ketamine, what does that do on a brain level? Sure, yeah, it's, I've been uh, 
really thinking about how to answer this question for many years. I've been working with ketamine for, I think it's going on almost 10 years now, and and it has several different mechanisms uh, that, you know, while they're interconnected, they are distinct mechanisms, like it's a NMDA receptor antagonist is the the most commonly cited mechanism, you know, blocks NMDA receptors, leading to this inhibition of GABA neurons, a surge of glutamate release, and that uh, restores this glutamatergic signaling in the brain, like waking up dormant neurons, kind of like jump-starting a car battery uh, in a brain area that might be dormant in depression. But, uh, but it also acts on this little part of the brain called the lateral habenula. There was a paper in Nature a couple years ago uh, that talked about lateral habenular burst mode and how ketamine turns off this overactive, stressed-out state, at least temporarily, giving the individual the chance to, uh, you know, work on some things, a, a more of a lightness and openness, a relief from the d deepest, darkest part of their depression. And then the, I'd say the other big mechanism is uh, this neurogenesis or neuroplasticity that comes from uh, from ketamine because of its uh, action on BDNF neurons uh, and leading to neuronal growth and this opportunity we were talking about to do some deep therapeutic work, uh, like making new connections, strengthening connections. I kind of view it as... Uh, ketamine and, uh, say, class classic psychedelics is somewhat of a, a miracle grow for neurons. Uh. What all of these psychedelics seem to have in common is that they're getting to the root cause of the mental illness. Like, I, I guess a lot of how mental health is treated now, it's like you, you get a antidepressant or anxiolytic or some kind of pharmacological drug that you you meant to take to kind of what you would say normalize your brain biochemistry but psychedelics seem to really dig in to these deep root cause parts of the mental illness to really bring light to why they're there in the first place is that where they kind of sit yeah i think that's one of the most exciting parts of this psychedelic medicine renaissance for me is that uh, we're moving from this uh, say daily pill approach or long-term weekly talk therapy targeted at symptom relief to really getting at the root cause or getting underneath the hood to try and figure out what's going on um, peeling away layers going deeper and uh, I think that's really evidenced by uh, some of the psychedelic literature that's coming out, uh, like whether it's MDMA for PTSD showing that uh, six to 12 months later, the majority of uh, participants after just two or three sessions no longer even meet criteria for PTSD diagnosis, or say the psilocybin for depression literature, or after a couple doses with therapy, there is lasting uh, response or remission in depression, depression uh, a year later. Yeah, it's really remarkable how powerful these medicines can be. Let's talk about MDMA in PTSD now because a lot of the therapy, when you're recalling traumatic events, it is or can be incredibly 
difficult and painful in itself and from what I've kind of gathered from from the outside looking in trying to recall these is is I guess kind of having the trauma again which is incredibly painful for most people what can MDMA assist in recalling that trauma well um, MDMA creates this safe container or safe space within oneself uh, and including those around you like a therapy team for example to revisit things that were previously too difficult and may have even been completely blocked off walled off out of necessity at the time and so uh, MDMA has this unique ability to let someone move towards their difficult to negative emotional states uh, uh, from past traumas for example and uh, feel them so they can be you know finally fully processed uh, and released yeah wonderful now both ketamine and mdma are showing really impressive results in ptsd now in preparation for this interview i was looking at pharmacogenic testing i guess how genes might affect response to medication is this how you're deciding which is more applicable or is there more of a rigorous structure to, to deciding which medicine to go for and which therapy to go for? So I, I, uh, pharmacogenetics has been around for a while. Uh, looking back to uh, even a couple decades ago, there was a, a high-profile case of a young boy with OCD who was put on Prozac by a prescriber and they didn't know that uh, he was an ultra slow metabolizer at a, at a gene, a liver um, cytochrome P450 drug metabolism gene called 2D6 and the Prozac or fluoxetine quickly uh, increased to toxic levels in that individual and sadly tragically he died, he passed away as a result. and. Uh, after that, there was a lot of um, attention paid to how do, we, how do we get a feel for this beforehand? How do we prevent something so tragic like this? And, and so for a very long time, we've had either uh, targeted pharmacogenetic tests or in more recent years, more broad, broad uh, looks at you know, how we metabolize certain uh, medicines. But... The fact of the matter is it's not uh, widely applicable. Like it's helpful for some individuals and some medicines. And I do uh, prescribe or order pharmacogenetic tests all the time. Um, but uh, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, especially in psychedelic medicine, because this field is somewhat in its infancy in terms of clinical work. But uh, I'd say it's it's a coin toss when getting a pharmacogenetic report on someone based on the current state of the science and what how, what we understand about this on whether or not it will impact what we do. Um, but they're getting so af affordable, like uh, it might be, you know, a couple hundred dollars or less to get a pharmacogenetic uh, lab test that uh, I do think it's a worthwhile endeavor. It's something looking at the genome you can do once and have as a reference throughout your life. Yeah, as technology and the research is advancing in this field, it's becoming 
more and more cheap to do these kind of things. Now, as the research and science does develop, we don't know a whole lot about the brain. I mean, we've, we've got a lot of research in the brain and we know the brain well, but there's still a vast, vast majority we don't know. And the same thing goes with consciousness. We seem to know the pharmacology quite well, but it's the phenomenology of these experiences that really stand out from from the rest. Now, coming back to genetics um, and the role of genetics in development, what role does the environment that you're in and, and the people that you're around in your childhood development, how how much of an impact does that have in, in the development of, of particular mental illnesses? Yeah, it's another really interesting question. Um, and there is an increasing body of literature around, um, say, early childhood stressors and traumas and later development of PTSD, for example. Um, and so getting back to that overall view of, of the heritability of something like PTSD, as an example, maybe 30-40% of it uh, is thought to be attributable to genetics. But you know, research is, has found that, uh, well, a number of interesting factors, if you have a certain genetic variant, for example, and a childhood uh, extreme stressor or trauma, then in individuals with certain variants are more likely to develop PTSD. Um, and so certain genetic variants uh, impact the risk or uh, almost predict later development of like post-traumatic syndromes like that. If you were to test someone early in life, how confident are you in predicting mental illness later on, or, or is that still in, it, in its infancy as well? Yeah, I'd say that is, uh, is still in its infancy. When I was in academics working in genetics, I had a, a clinical trials clinic and then down the hall um, split my time there and in a genetics lab. And, and we were able to find some genes responsible for some kind of severe, uh, debilitating, you know, heritable neuropsychiatric conditions. But when we went looking for uh, genes underlying like depression and ADHD, it became much more complicated and apparent that, you know, huge sample sizes would be needed because there are likely many, many genes involved. And I think the best example to look at is autism, where say there's an 80, 90% uh, genetic component. And, but in that, there are hundreds of different subtypes of autism, genetically speaking. So one uh, example would be if you inherit this duplication on chromosome 15 uh, from your mother, then you're at a higher risk of developing autism, or that might account for, say, 3% of the genetics of autism when there's still another 70, 80% plus to account for. And these are being kind of cataloged over time in the research. Like you've got fragile X syndrome as one form of autism. And you have this maternally inherited chromosome 15 duplication I was talking about as another form. And, and the list goes on. And there's a, a long road uh, towards... Uh, ahead towards being able to predict, you know, whether or not someone will get it, uh, you know, even on some of the simpler conditions, there's still, there's still the whole uh, other side of the coin of environment. 
Yeah. Now, David Sinclair's information theory of aging suggests that it's not the genes that are necessarily damaged over time. It's how the genes are read or transcribed. Does that link in with genetics in behavior, cognition and mental health also? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's, I think that's the next uh, frontier in genetics uh, in terms of uh, exploring and understanding the genetic role in our mental health would be that epigenetic component, so gene expression. We talked about pharmacogenetics where you can test um, a number of genes once in your life and have that as a reference, and it doesn't really change. But uh, epigenetics, on the other hand, is looking at the expression of genes or, or what's happening moment to moment um, in how these genes impact uh, how you show up in the world, you know, how you feel, how you think. And uh, that gets a little bit tricky, um, practically speaking, in the neurosciences or in uh, kind of the you know, brain-related conditions because when you look at epigenetics, uh, ideally you look at the, the tissue uh, directly. Like if you're studying the liver and you want to see gene expression in the liver, you get a liver biopsy. It's a little harder to do in, in the brain. So, uh, sure, you can take a blood sample and look at how genes are expressed that you can see in the blood. You can do that even in saliva, but you're one step removed from the source of what you're looking at. So in some studies, we've even done these uh, neuroepithelial biopsies. The closest we can get to the brain without doing a brain biopsy would be like uh, well, something even more painful than a COVID nasal swab. Um, and so it's not always easy to add on to, you know, drug studies or genetic studies is getting that kind of epigenetic uh, sample. But uh, the more work we do, the more we'll be able to identify these signatures of uh, gene expression in, say, saliva or blood samples. And so I, I'm excited about the work that lies ahead and that people are starting to do in this area. For sure. There seems to be medical advances all throughout the world, and it's an incredibly exciting time because it, it really does feel like we are making really, really great progress. Coming to eating disorders and the neuroscience of, of eating disorders, is it a similar neural cascade to something like addiction or substance abuse? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and there are similarities for sure. And even though it's not, eating disorders are not commonly referred to as addictive disorders. There are some fundamental differences and, and, and many like treatment teams have found that it's not helpful to individuals in this struggle to characterize them that way. Um, but I do think it's useful to look at it through that lens at times because um, like we were talking about, these are deeply ingrained patterns and uh, they do become like bigger than oneself, like sometimes requiring a lot of help to get out of that stuck place uh, because it's hard to just wrestle your way out with the same brain that got stuck. You know, sometimes it takes a, a structured environment, like going into a treatment center where you're, uh, you have support around the clock uh, and are able to not engage in these patterns long enough to lay down those new pathways. Um, 
but uh, so yeah, I think uh, there there are similarities, but in general, it boils down to that uh, that concept of uh, what we were talking about earlier: neurons that fire together, wire together, and eating disorders are some of the hardest to undo, some of the most difficult to treat. What does the ketamine-assisted therapy look like in when you compare it to something like a, a psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy? Are there any differences between those two, or is it just the substance that changes? Well, I think it's mostly the substance that changes, but because ketamine is so short-acting, it gives us uh, the ability to do it more frequently. Um, And so a typical course of ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, whether it's for depression, uh, PTSD, an eating disorder, or OCD, for example, might look something like once uh, or twice a week for a few weeks, and then maybe uh, one or two times a month uh, in uh, a plan of maintenance and going deeper uh, in the months that follow. And whereas in psilocybin, because of the length of the journey and the magnitude of the experience, there's, uh, I guess like, like MDMA, there's often a good month of space in between but those medicines like psilocybin also comes along with more insight um, tied to it just by nature of the the molecule the signature of it how it works it uh, with ketamine you have to work a little harder to make meaning of the experience and and pair it with insight uh, that's why I'm a big uh, proponent of ketamine assisted psychotherapy and using that opportunity that is missed uh, if you're just giving ketamine as a molecule alone. Yeah, absolutely. I guess any substance-assisted therapy is vastly different to just taking the substance in isolation. It's incredibly important to have that psychotherapist or, or someone by your side to actually guide you through that experience and kind of dig down deeper. Now, in terms of ketamine and MDMA how does one look into or what is the patient suggested to to dig into to find the root cause of particular problems is there is there a way that you can kind of encourage someone to to get deeper are are many people kind of resistant to to go into those deep parts of their mind yeah yeah they they definitely are I think we all are we're we understandably and naturally shy away from from the pain you know it's a reflex and and when the pain is greater than our ability to to uh, handle it at a given time in our life that's when we we do have to out of survival wall it off uh, you know store it away for later and that's uh, I guess the the sad part to me of of the work is an individual with uh, say trauma as a part of their um, their illness, for example, the sad thing is they have to feel it again, not only when it happened, but again, you know, you got to feel it to heal it. So when we create that safe container and develop that therapeutic rapport and, you know, draw in the help of a medicine that might facilitate this process, uh, you know, there is, uh, there is work in terms of, uh, you know, difficult experiences and emotional breakthrough that needs to happen along the way. And so because we shy away from those kind of things, um, 
there are some tricks I think uh, individual clinicians, therapists uh, find to help uh, get underneath the hood and get at what's going on. And you know, I personally like this idea that triggers are friends to follow or the obstacle is a path. So before going into a ketamine therapy session, for example, I'll often work with the client in, say, a guided uh, meditation experience or, or something along those lines to find a recent trigger, something that stirred up an emotional reaction, uh, knowing that that means we're on to something. There's an internal mechanism of vulnerability we can use. And then we'll see what the the associated uh, feelings are and go even deeper. What was the unmet need and where does it tie back to, like in childhood? When was the first time someone ever, when was the first time someone ever felt that way? And then we can go back and heal not only kind of these recent uh, reactions, but get to the root cause that might be years or decades ago of, of where it stems from. For sure. What is the what are the success rates of ketamine assisted therapy for PTSD? I know with MDMA we're we're seeing remission rates of up to sixty or eighty percent. What is ketamine's success rate like? How how far into the the research is it? So interestingly and surprisingly, a lot less uh, controlled studies now on PTSD specifically for. Uh, with ketamine compared to MDMA because of the the beautiful work that uh, MAPS has been doing uh, leading this leading MDMA along the development pipeline there are a number of PTSD studies with ketamine that are quite positive there's there's a lot of literature on depression so I think we can get more clear about the response rates in depression but with PTSD I would just be venturing a guess and it's it's going to be you know, quite a bit less than MDMA. Um, you know, I've never seen anything like MDMA in terms of healing from trauma, but but I will say that ketamine is a powerful tool, and uh, and my go-to um, when looking for a substance uh, to help with the therapy of healing from trauma, at least until MDMA is available, prescribable in clinic, say uh, next year or or in, in the next year or two. What is the current legal status of MDMA and ketamine in, in this field? So in the United States where I live and work, um, MDMA is still a Schedule One substance, uh, unfortunately, but uh, as I was just saying, thankfully, MAPS has been forging ahead, you know, under this fast-track designation and uh, MDMA is entering phase three studies, um, which is the last uh, phase needed to get a medicine approved. So it could be as early as next year that we can prescribe MDMA for PTSD in clinic. And in fact, uh, at the beginning of 2020, uh, the FDA allowed MAPS to give compassionate use of MDMA for PTSD to uh, say five, at least five patients at 10 centers across the country. Uh, which is huge. I think a huge step towards uh, widespread access, and of course, much more widespread access is needed. Ketamine, on the other hand, is has been a prescribable medicine and anesthesia for decades in the U.S., and so there 
there are really uh, very few restrictions on it. Uh, you, you can use it as a psychiatrist, for example, in clinic, uh, and give it by injection or by IV or lozenge or nasal spray. I've been using all those forms for many years, thousands of individuals, and I'll even sometimes for the right candidate um, prescribe them lozenges or a nasal spray that they can either take home and use with under the supervision of a support person who I've coached and worked with for this purpose, or they might take it to their therapy session, either down the hall or in another clinic, and take a, a low dose to facilitate openness before going into therapy. And, uh, and because it's been around a long time, it's also uh, cheap, generic. Um, I know the price can get up there when you're talking about in-clinic injections or infusions paired with therapy, but, uh, but the medicine itself is very uh, inexpensive and, and relatively accessible. Yeah, it is an exciting time to see that they, MDMA and psilocybin have breakthrough therapy designation, so things are happening really, really quickly. Now, there seems to be quite a transdiagnostic spectrum for psychedelic therapies from PTSD to depression to anxiety. What else can ketamine assist in mental illness? Well, I'd say the top uh, indications that I use it for are uh, depression, PTSD, anxiety, eating disorders, and, you know, across the whole spectrum of eating disorders, OCD, and even substance abuse, it, it may seem counterintuitive. I get a lot of questions about that. But, you know, even though psychedelic medicines and including ketamine uh, can be drugs of abuse, uh, they're also anti-addictive in the right uh, set and setting. Yeah, for sure. It, it does seem counterintuitive to treat drugs to drug addiction. But it also opens the entire question around well how are we categorizing drugs what what is a drug i mean we firstly need to desensitize from the word drug because it seems to have very little meaning when it's referring to so many vastly different substances and experiences what do you see psychedelics i guess being categorized as down the future or, or what is your kind of idea about how we can go about a drug reform or, or categorizing particular substances in in certain groups yeah it's uh well, it's a great question and you know i don't know what the future holds i have my guesses and um but i i think we can learn some things from spravato for example that was fda approved last year in about march 2019 as what i consider the first uh FDA-approved psychedelic medicine in the U.S. Uh, and along with that approval came uh, what's called a REM system, a risk evaluation and management system, where uh, prescribers, clinics, pharmacists need to register in the system before they can give it, and patients need to be registered in the system before they can get it in order to track both uh, safety and uh, addiction potential. And I, uh, well, I don't know, and there, I'm guessing this is being discussed and worked out, at least in the early stages now. Uh, I would guess that 
MDMA will come with uh, will come with a similar type of monitoring program, and so the the path to to that I think is uh, multifaceted in that there's the clinical research that needs to be done, like is being done with MDMA and psilocybin to get them on the market as prescribable medicines. But at the same time, there's this unfortunate scheduling that happened, over-scheduling of these medicines in, the, say, the Nixon era that makes them so hard to study and access uh, clinically. And so I've been excited by recent developments in, like, the recent election, for example, with Oregon passing Measure 109, developing a program to allow psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, for example. The decriminalization movements are also helpful stepping stones towards my more widespread access. access. But I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot that needs to be done from a lot of different angles in terms of advocacy, awareness, research uh, to pave the way for this. Yeah, absolutely. I do believe that, you know, there seems to be a slight discrepancy where people sit in terms of whether it's for recreation and therapeutic or or purely as therapy. But regardless of where people sit on that, these medicines and, and drugs, so to speak, really need to be educated and people need to be aware of, of what these substances are doing so that they, whether it is in a recreation setting or a therapeutic setting, they know what is what they're up against. And I do believe that a drug reclassification will help that because the, the conventional belief is, you know, there's, there's illicit drugs and non-illicit drugs and you can't have the illegal drugs, but you can have the legal drugs, obviously, in, in reference to law. But in terms of health outcomes, it's vastly different. It doesn't really make too much sense when you've got something like alcohol, which is obviously so broadly used, but gives so many bad side effects and is is horrible for our health just before we we close this one out is there anything else you you would like to add no i don't uh i don't think so nothing else really comes to mind i've really enjoyed chatting with you and certainly an exciting time to be to be working in this field yeah definitely now if people have enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more about your work or, or some of your research where can you direct them uh, well, my home base is uh, Novamind.ca. Novamind's uh, my parent company. I'm their chief medical officer, and uh, we operate clinics and and retreats and, and do research studies in psychedelic medicine. Wonderful, Reid. Well, thank you very much for your time. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge from genetics to psychedelics to pharmacology. It's, it's been really insightful listening and, and hearing your perspective on, on these substances and, and the road forward for therapy. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, likewise, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you. Well, there you have it, friends. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our endeavors, the best thing that you can do is leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This will help expose this information to the people who are seeking it. If you're curious to learn more about psychedelic-assisted therapies or related information, or perhaps you'd like to know a little bit more about the services, events, or programs that Mind Medicine Australia offers, if so, please head to mindmedicineaustralia.org and you will find all the information you need right there. 
And finally, the information in this episode is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for the advice provided by a doctor or other qualified healthcare professional. Patients should not use the information contained for diagnosing a health problem or disease. Patients should consult with a doctor or other healthcare professional for medical advice about diagnosis and treatment. All right, we did it. If you've come this far, thank you very, very much. I really hope you're enjoying these episodes as much as I am bringing them to you. If you have any comments or questions, you're more than welcome to send me an email, tommy at mindmedicineaustralia.org. But that's it from me. I'll see you here for the next one. Until then, keep well. Invest in yourself.